to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Get 15% off any DIR 101 course and introduction to DIR and DIR floor time through ICDL.com by using the promo code AFFECTA15. That's A-F-F-E-C-T-A-1-5. Hello, I'm Daria Brown, and this week I have with me Virginia Spielman returning. She is the Executive Director of the Star Institute in Colorado for Sensory Processing Disorder. And she recently completed her PhD in Infant and Early Childhood Development at Fielding University. She's also a DIR expert training leader. And we also have Kieran Rose, who is an autistic self-advocate in the United Kingdom. He is a writer, a speaker, a consultant, a trainer, a researcher, a published author, a neurodivergent educator. His website is theautisticadvocate.com. Welcome to you both. It's wonderful to have you here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So today we wanted to get into all kinds of issues around self-advocacy, autism pride, apparently monotropism is going to be a topic we're going to touch on. <laughs> and so why don't uh, we start with you telling us a little bit about your history, Kieran, and how did you get into the role that you're in today? Um, what was your upbringing like? Um, I was actually diagnosed at the age of 23. Um, so that was about 20 years ago. Um, and uh, it was a little bit out of the blue. Um, my eldest nephew had been diagnosed a couple of years before when he was about five or six. And he had an ADHD diagnosis as well. And I just happened to pick up an autism book and started reading. There was a, a list of questions in the back. Um, this was even before the, uh, the, the EQ was invented, the, uh, the emotion quotient. Um, so, uh, so I started reading those questions. I was like, Oh, that sounds like me. That sounds like me. That sounds like me. And then my sister came around for dinner and I shoved this book, my oldest sister, and I shoved the book in her hands and I was like, do this, do this list, do this list. And she did it as well. And she scored really highly on it as well. And my mom got really, really excited, um, because she'd thrown herself into supporting my nephew and finding about everything about autism back then, which obviously wasn't great. Um, back then it wasn't great anyway. So, uh, so we got rushed off to the GPs on the Monday morning and then got a referral and I was diagnosed six months later. And at that time, the only autistic adult in the world was Temple Grandin. Um, so who I didn't really identify with and, and, you know, couldn't really make sense of made sense of some of what she was saying, but not a lot of it. So I didn't really know what to do with my diagnosis. So I literally parked it on a shelf, carried on with my life, carried on going through burnout, depression, um, hitting the same barriers I'd hit before relationship problems, communication problems, all of those kind of things, thinking that everything was wrong with me. And it wasn't until my first son was born, and uh, my wife got rushed off to theatre and I was literally left holding the baby at three o'clock in the morning. And he stared at me and stared at me and stared at me. And we had this silent conversation, telepathic conversation. And I knew that he was just like me. And I knew that if I didn't figure myself out, I wasn't going to be a good enough dad for him. So then that sent me off on this tangent of finding about everything about autism I could. I bought every single book I could get my hands on. And none of it rang true. It was all written by professionals and parents and, and none of it spoke to me as an autistic person. And it wasn't until I found um, groups online run by autistic people and engaged with those that suddenly it felt like everybody was talking about me. 
And so that really, really kind of rang true. And then from there, I've literally just soaked up every research paper I can find, every book, talk to, so I run support groups now, talk to thousands of autistic people across the world. I do research. And so I feel like I'm in a place now where I can not talk for everybody, but I can open my mouth and say things and, and encapsulate the experience of a lot of people. So that, that gives me super privilege, but that's how I've ended up doing what I do today. Wow. I, wow. That's amazing to hear that story. And especially hearing about you having this telepathic conversation with your child, that made me very emotional to hear that. That's like such a beautiful way of imagining connection that is yeah. nonverbal. Um, and how about before your diagnosis? Can you just summarize, you know, your upbringing and what made yeah. you feel different or what were your struggles? um i always felt out of sync with everybody else i felt um kind of like i was moving in a little bit like slow motion and everyone was moving in fast forward everybody seemed to know what to do where to be how to place their bodies the right things to say all of those kind of things um and i was always out out of one step behind all of that and and it got me into so many issues and problems where I feel like I would, I took the blame for things where they weren't my fault because I couldn't get my words out well enough to be able to describe what had happened. Or, um, I remember growing up and very, very having massive kind of sensory issues and things and needing certain sensory information as I'm aware of it now and being invalidated like around those things all the time and being told, you know, it's not that bad. You'll get over it. Those kind of things and stops, you know, at your age, all of those kind of things that, you know, probably most children are told at some point, but I was told those things all the time to the point where I stopped complaining about things. I just kind of in started internalizing it. And that really from about the age of seven or eight, right up until my late twenties, I just internalized everything. Um, automatically assumed I was at fault if something went wrong, automatically I put my, threw myself out there trying to please other people all the time and make other people feel comfortable and never quite succeeding. And so I just felt like I was butting up against what I used to, my, my now wife and I, when we first got together, we had a long distance relationship and we used to sit in a pizza hut every time one of us was going back on the train to back wherever we lived. And I used to get upset in these pizza hut dinners and having these meals because I always said, I always said to Michelle that I felt like there was a wall inside me that I needed to be able to get around or overcome. And, and that because things like picking up the phone, I couldn't even talk to people on the phone and, you know, everyday things that everybody else doesn't even think about, I was struggling with. And it's not until now looking back that I realized actually, I just needed things to be a little bit different for me in order for me to be able to do those things. And if the world shifted just a tiny bit, just to make that little bit of difference, new doors would open up for me and, and things would become simpler. But, but as a child, I didn't have that. And then obviously I was undiagnosed at that point as well. So I just kind of withdrew into myself and I was very isolated. I was bullied a lot and struggled with friends and had friends, but looking back now, they weren't friends. It was my perspective, my perception of what friendship was. And yeah, so it, it was, it was unhappy. I had a very, very unhappy kind of childhood and teen years and things. And ended up in a lot of places where you know not good places at all and now that you have a son how old is he uh he's 12 coming up 13 oh, okay and i've got two so other children as well my son is 12 as well so mm -hmm. it are your are any of your children diagnosed 
yeah, um, he's diagnosed, my eldest and my youngest is. My middle boy is one of those uh, lovely ones that uh, floats around different diagnoses, but and nobody, there's not quite a criteria that's been written correctly for him yet. Let's put it that way. He's definitely neurodivergent though. And how has that experience been being a parent? Um, being a parent generally is challenging at the best of times. Um, as an autistic person, being a parent, it's got its own unique challenges. Um, but I love being a dad. I adore my children. Um, you know, we are together. Our family, we're, we're a neurodivergent family. My, my wife's neurodivergent as well. So we are together pretty much most of the time and we do things together collectively and we have a, we live individually in our collective as well, you know, so it's, it's not without its challenges, but I love it. I love being a parent and I, I love being friends with my children as much as being their dad as well and, and experiencing that. It's, it's brilliant. Well, I'd love to get um, more about that later the, because your children must benefit so much from the fact that you understand their neurodivergence. So I'd love to talk about that a little bit more too. Um, Virginia, thoughts on anything that Kieran said so far? Um, well, thanks for being so brave and personal and vulnerable, Kieran. That's it's a, I, I know it's a gift to anyone who gets to listen to your story. Um, I think, you know, it's a sad truth that a lot of um, times, historically, we've avoided supporting our children because we think pursuing a diagnosis will do them a disservice. Mm -hmm. You know, it seemed, it's a very polarized way of thinking about human development that um, if someone can cope and endure school, then they should. And if they can't, then we'll pursue a diagnosis, which is even worse news. And um, I think the time for that kind of thinking has been and gone. And we're moving now towards really understanding the benefits of um, inclusion and diversity in every environment and that um, schools by design are um, flawed because there is no homogenous classroom. There's no classroom where every child has exactly the same environmental and learning needs. So, you know, that's what it, that's what it sparks in me is, you know, this really interrogating this idea of um, what school should be like, what childhood should look like, mm -hmm. and um, just chilling out about the fact that different learners need different supports. And in the long run, that's going to be to everyone's benefit. Absolutely. And so many schools are just, I mean, the majority, maybe 99.9% .9 of the schools are just not equipped or there yet. Um, it, it's still such a culture of compliance and, you know, getting through curriculum and there are, you know, little bright spots here and there that we hear about and, um, you know, private schools that do their best, but a lot of them are behavioral types of therapies, still not understanding those individual differences and those sensory processing profiles. And um, we have a long way to go, but yeah, I think the pandemic especially opened up this door where all of these different minority groups in all areas of you know race, sexuality, uh, gender identity, and all of these different things have, have come in to the open 
And it just opens the door for us to respect the spectrum of people and <laughs> that exist in everybody's individual differences. So we're definitely yeah, moving I, in that direction. I, I would say the pandemic re removed some of the systemic marginalization that was, you know, um, excluding or poorly including the groups that you that you outlined, right? By 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 dismantling some systems, not not on purpose, but it just happened. And so a nice some nice collateral is that um, you know we've seen the difference some accommodations can make. Um, but you know I I often say that we forget the adult the child's going to become thinking instead about the convenience of the classroom we want now. And, you know, it's to the detriment of our communities that we do that. And so, you know, moving from that deficit lens and the concept that children must endure school towards um, a well-being lens and, um, you know, a, a neurodiversity, um, affirming lens is, you know, that it's, it's only positive. I can't see any negatives to it. I think it's going to save money. I think it's going to um, build stronger communities. I think it's going to support healing in our polarized communities. Um, so, and, and I think that it's a very timely conversation. I think so many people are realizing this now that we truly are in a paradigm shift. I couldn't agree more. And let's get into that topic of neurodiversity, affirming the benefits of neurodiversity. And uh, I'll just come from the, the parent lens in terms of parents who I see at ICDL's parent support meeting that we run weekly at ICDL online. Uh, parents from anywhere in the world can attend. And oftentimes it's new newly diagnosed children's parents who are coming and they're very overwhelmed because they've been told all of these things that are wrong with their child and they've scored super low the first percentile and all these you know i'll say meaningless measures and they're overwhelmed they they're not sure what to do their child isn't functioning well in preschool the the teachers are pointing out all of these behaviors that are happening and in some cases, the children were fine at home. And then all we heard from um, in a recent podcast from a parent who said it was only when their child went to preschool that all of a sudden there were problems because at home, everything was great. And then in other cases at home, it, it's really hard uh, depending on the severity of disability, their, their child can have so many challenges and problems, you know, from some of the things that we hear about, um, you know, smearing feces or, you know, banging their head against the wall constantly or hitting siblings and injuring themselves and injuring siblings, which, you know, these kinds of things are so stressful for parents. So uh, we get from that place of society talking about disorder, disorder, all these terrible things we need to cure, etc. all these you know, ridiculous pseudoscience naturopaths out there telling you to cure your children that people fall for and um, to the point where you get to the other side where you have autistic self advocates really advocating for, you know, we are not disordered. This is uh, the spectrum of people look at all of these people in history who were autistic without them we wouldn't have 
all of the things that we have today. And that, you know, I, I, I hope that I try and be that bridge for parents where you have to go through that process of accepting the child you have and working your way to how can I support them in the best way that I can, respecting their individual differences. And, you know, I know that from what I read, so, and, and Kieran, I'll, I'll let you speak to this, some self-advocates um, don't like to hear parents complaining about the difficulties of raising an autistic child, which I can imagine um, is awful to hear if you're autistic and you're saying, oh, it was so hard to raise me. Like, I know you talk about on your website, these feelings that you internalized and how it, it's so detrimental to their self-image and their self-esteem growing up. What, what can you offer to parents who are in that spot where, you know, this is so hard for me to understand why this is okay that my child is this way in some of the especially most challenging cases? It's um, it's a complicated question that we could probably sit here and talk for hours and hours and hours about because there's so many different narratives involved. I mean, even going back to what you were just talking about before around the education system, and and that's a reflection on wider, particularly Western society in terms of you know how there's expectations about how we have to live our lives and the things that the milestones that we have to get through in through our lives not just developmental milestones but even as we come into adulthood the expectation that you have to go to college and get a job and get married and have 2.4 children have a white picket fence and you know all of those things we've been conditioned to feel societally that those are the things that we have to do and then systems have been built around that conditioning in order to further fuel it which again reinforce the fact that we have to do these things. So when somebody comes along that upsets the apple cart and isn't going to obviously go through those steps, then that can cause fear and that can cause worry and concerns and frustration and anger. And, and then we start worrying about what other people are going to feel and what, you know, what, what's the outcome for my two-month-old baby or my two-year-old child going to be? Where are they going to be when they're 40 or 50 or 60? Are they going to be in the same place? And it, it's it's a scary, scary time. And I, this is something personally that I've not gone through that kind of gamut of emotions, because I came at this knowing about myself and I was in a relatively good position by the time my, my oldest son was old enough to kind of start accessing school and things like that. So it was never a negative for me. And knowing that my children are autistic was never, ever a negative for me. It's always been about, you know, you're just like me. I'm all right. Things have happened to me that aren't great, but that's not my fault. We're going to make sure that those things don't happen to you, or I'm going to do my best to make sure that those things don't happen to you. So, so I have a lot of privilege when I talk about this kind of stuff because I came at it from a, a place that, you know, I had obviously massive difficulties, but I came at it a place from positivity. But for parents that go, go through this kind of gamut, you're right in firstly that, I mean, if you grab anybody off the street and ask them about autism, most people are going to talk about negative aspects. Most people are going to start bringing up the myths and they're going to start talking about how autistic people have, you know, whether we're broken or whether, you know, we need to be fixed. We need to be, if we work harder, we can be better humans or better normal in inverted commas humans and all of those kind of things. And, or they'll talk about autistic people that rock and melt down all the time and have behavioral problems and don't speak and, and will never speak and will never amount to anything. And, 
they're awful narratives that are around all of us. And that's come from a hundred years of autism history, which is disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. It came from a place of um, looking at a particular co very, very tiny cohort of white boys who acted in a particular way, which is where the original diagnostic criteria has come from, with a couple of girls thrown in there who were doing the male autism thing, you know, and, and then as, as it kind of, was kind of looked at, and then it's developed on and we've had all these narratives around behavior and all of the, and all of it has come from external perspectives. And that's the place when I talk to parents, that's the bit where I always bring them. I mean, I, I run my own training course. Um, it's about 20 hours over the course of a couple of weeks. And I, I start with a history of autism because in order to reframe your understanding of about autism and about how to support autistic people, you need to know where all this myth has come from and you need to wipe that all from your head so that you can start afresh and start letting all this good stuff come in and all this useful information because all the stuff that we learned previously isn't productive at all the diagnostic criteria isn't a reflection of autistic people it's a reflection of distressed behaviors and that's what they're looking for because usually when it comes to getting get an autism diagnosis usually it's associated with some kind of crisis point because the child has reached a point where they are unable to manage. So all of this stuff comes bursting out. Sometimes, obviously, it's different. Sometimes it's a little bit more obvious. But that in itself is usually because of connected co-occurring conditions. So there's so much to unpick there that you can't just... Sort I, as an autistic advocate, cannot expect any parent just to understand this immediately or to take this all on board and go, yes, you're absolutely right. A 10-minute conversation is going to rock my world. That's not going to happen. This is a slow process for everybody. And this is about recognizing that our expectations are wrong. We are set, we set ourselves up to fail because we expect we're going to have the prince or the princess who's going to be the president or the politician or the, the business owner or, or, you know, whatever, however that looks like, because we've been conditioned to think that way. So once we remove that expectation and we start looking at actually what have we got now and what strengths has that person in front of us got how can we build on those strengths not looking at negatives not looking at deficits what strengths does that person bring how much joy do they bring to my life what are the good things that are happening here and when we start focusing on that then all the other stuff starts to fall into place a little bit more and you become ready to kind of take on these new narratives of recognizing that autistic people aren't broken some autistic people have disabilities which make life a lot harder and a lot more complicated. Some are disabled in other ways which maybe aren't as complicated but are still massively challenging. What's wrong with that, though? Why, why, why is there wrongness attached to it and negativity attached to that? And when we start unpicking those things and do that gently and softly, we actually start getting to where we need to be. But I do have the disclaimer there that for a lot of autistic, we are carrying a lot of trauma a huge amount of trauma most of it i've yet to meet an autistic person that doesn't have cptsd in some way shape or form and is carrying trauma around other things as well and you know but just about constant invalidation in life and and has masked over that for many autistic people that's a massive part of our narratives as well that we condition ourselves to just forget and not experience those things to ex live life superficially and, and not experience the trauma in a kind of open in your face kind of this is happening to me we just shove it all down and internalize it so there has because, to be something because it's, it's because it's shamed so much yeah, it's shamed it absolutely so and that's ashamed. all these narratives yeah. there and so from a parental perspective what i always ask is to recognize that recognize that the people that you really need advice from 
or also the people that have experienced this shame and this internalized ableism and are working through that themselves. So the things that you say as a parent are probably going to be quite triggering in a lot of ways. So this is about meeting the middle in regards to that kind of trauma because parents are being traumatized too. So it's about having that kind of bridge in the middle there and kind of recognizing each other's trauma and saying, right, how can we support each other through this rather than just coming at loggerheads towards each other? Because that's generally what tends to happen, unfortunately. Yes. And Virginia, would you mind um, defining for the listeners what is meant by ableism? Because I know that is a term that some people are familiar with, but maybe some parents who are listening might not be familiar with it. I think there's a couple of things I want to define. Yeah, so ableism is um, a narrative that's embedded in, I think, most cultures globally, that there is a very narrow, correct way to be human and to function as a human. And it's generally, you, that it refers to um, your mobility, so being able to walk without assistance. It refers to your cognitive style, that it would be um, in keeping with the neuro majority, that people inside the bell curve, um, although, you know, it's questionable if that's even really true, but um, so that you would have mainstream uh, bodily functions, cognitive functions, social styles, and so on. And so um, the ableist narrative is embedded in our media, our education systems, our how we train our healthcare providers, um, you know, so, so many of these things, and it's decades and decades old. Um, people who started challenging that, I would say some of the first groups of the, with a deaf population who started challenging that and saying, you know, actually, we have our own culture, we have our own ways of connecting. It's, we prefer it, thank you very much. Um, it's very valid, we're going to celebrate one another. Um, there's several groups in the UK that celebrate um, their um, uh, Down syndrome experiences together, and they are very proud and have wonderful community around this and, and really challenge those stereotypes as well. And um, there's other groups, I, you know, I know more about the UK and the US and some other countries, but there's other groups in the UK that, that do this around physical disabilities as well. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's an archaic, it's an outdated way of thinking, but it's so deeply embedded in our language, our, 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 our environmental design, our education design, that it's quite insidious. It's, it's, you, you might think you, it's a bit like someone say, a white person saying, I'm not racist, right? And probably there's something you need to interrogate at some level in your experiences of the world. And ableism's insidious in a, in a similar way. I'm not, I'm not saying they're the same, but you know, that it, you, you, some of it's conscious and a lot of it isn't. A lot of it's just deeply, deeply embedded. And CTPSD is complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which is um, which really means that uh, post-traumatic stress that has not occurred from one acute event or the experience of um, combat, but um, you know these other possibilities of developmental trauma, sensory trauma. Um, thwarted belonging, otherness, and so on. 
which, which to just to clarify, CPTSD is not just something autistics experience. So there is a whole Correct. field of that, that, you know, people that were raised by parents who were abusive and, and numerous other scenarios that as adults, they've now, you know, realized why do I explode when certain things happen? Why do I lose my temper? What is, you know, these things triggering to me? It's triggering a memory that's familiar, but it has nothing to do with the situation I'm in now. It's a memory that I've buried from childhood, has to do with left brain, right brain, pressing, blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah. And it's certainly. not even a it's not even a conscious memory, right? So right. at a body level, at a body yes. level, something's triggered. And I might not even know what it is, and I'm gonna snap or I'm gonna be defensive. And I, I might attribute it to something that's just happened, but it's got many, many, many more layers of experience. And Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey's book, as much as I never thought I'd say this, is excellent on the topic. So it's called What Happened to You? And it really breaks it down. The audiobook's brilliant, and I would recommend everybody listens to it in the whole world. Um, so that's a great book on that topic. I mean, I was thinking, Daria, as you were asking that question, that you it was a huge question. You asked <laughs> yeah. a huge question. And then I, I'm, setting up, you... I, I'm setting up what I want to discuss for the next year on the podcast. Okay, <laughs> in okay, one got episode. it, got it. <laughs> it was, a, I mean, and Karen gave you a huge answer, but I also sort of want to break it down and think about like what framework can we use to organize our thinking around this? And I think um, one really useful framework is the social model of disability, which is really gonna help us dismantle some of these things and these pieces. And so the social model of disability posits and proposes that the majority of a disability experience is not the responsibility or fault of the individual, but rather due to the structure and narrative and culture and environment in which they exist. So if we think about the diagnostic journey of a family and the report, even the report that you mentioned, so a family gets a report and the child's on the first percentile for this, 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 and this, how is that being presented? Are we still using age norms? for autistic children because we know autistic children have different developmental trajectories so how can we use age norms and what does this percentile mean and then you know what's the purpose of the report is the purpose of the report um because we want this child to just jolly well catch up and be able to fit into a mainstream classroom or is it because this child is distressed and we're figuring out how to support them on their unique journey towards self-actualization. And so even from that very, very initial stage, the language that we use when we're talking to parents, the way that reports are written and the way that standardized assessments are designed in the social model of disability, all of that's pretty questionable. And so we start see seeing already that um, diminished flourishing and well-being might be the fault of the society and the culture rather than the child um, whose trajectory is different. And of course we want to mitigate suffering. Of course we do. And I don't think I've ever met a self-advocate who's saying, we love that part of our experience. Don't change it. There's always, you know, we, we don't want our children to be terrified at the sound of the toilet. We don't want 
you know, touch to be physically painful. But at the same time, we don't want them to be told they're deficient over and over again. We don't want the doctor to be discussing with mum, with the child in the buggy, in the, in the pushchair, in the room, while they're hearing this and we're assuming they don't get it because they're non-speaking or, or, you know, these, these things. So, you know, I, I, I think the social model of disability isn't, isn't a perfect answer, but it has a lot to offer us as we think about this. And, and the big question for me is how do we make this palatable and break it down into bite-sized pieces for the families early on their journey. And so that we're challenging that narrative, um, welcome to Holland, now you're a special needs parent, it's time to grieve, you're gonna go through the five stages of grief. What, you know, how do we, how do we get in there before that message even arrives? Um, it's, it's a, that I think is a big challenge that we have as a support community. Yeah, and I mentioned on the podcast before, but it, this is an example, you know, we recently, we, not recently, it must be at least two years ago now, or three, we had another developmental assessment for our son, and I got the report back and it said, I found him hard to assess, and I, or I found him difficult to assess, and I literally wrote back to the place and said, excuse me, you found it difficult to assess, how about you didn't make the test relevant to him in any way or give him any reason to have to want to do these meaningless tasks like i let them have it like how dare you say i found him difficult to assess mm -hmm. like you literally expected my son to sit at a table and like show him pictures and say oh which one's this flip over this do this you know like just such meaningless tasks and then to have that assessment sounds so degrading like he's the difficult person just infuriated me um and these you know we touched on this in the podcast i did with dr alex klein about neurodivergence um affirming care i mean what we're really talking about there is um it's been capsulized by one of virginia's favorite people one of mine as well um dr damian milton who mm -hmm. talks about the double empathy problem. So the double empathy problem is literally about looking at things from other people's perspectives. But anyway, the, the, the double empathy problem kind of encapsulates everything that we've been talking about here because from an autistic perspective, nothing has been seen from an autistic perspective. Absolutely nothing. It's all been from even going back to the, the professional that wrote the report about your son. Um, you know, that's he couldn't assess your son because the tools he had and the knowledge he had wasn't good enough. But yet it, it he's was still the it professional was a woman who's paid was, the big bucks and sorry yeah, she it, it was a woman but there, yeah but, I get your point still yeah uh -huh. so and that's part of what's wrong with the professional narrative and that's why so many autistic advocates are coming forward and challenging those narratives and professionals a lot of professionals don't like that firstly um and secondly parents by default find that problematic because we've been conditioned to listen to the professionals but when we know that the professionals have less knowledge than the group they're talking about which does happen in a lot of cases yep. that's where it all gets really really messy and that's kind of that's when I talk to parents that's one of the hardest things that they are able to overcome because we are taught that we have to listen to doctors and we have to listen to psychologists and and all of these specialists and experts and inverted to commas in all these areas that have been talking about autistic people in a certain way for a very, very long time and have got a lot of it wrong. And that's caused so many problems, not just for us, but for parents as well. 
it is important that you know parents know that the professionals that are telling them about their children have been educated in a very restrictive way and they aren't aware of a lot of the stuff that's changed in the last 20 years and maybe some of them are but so you know i think there's a deeper work to be done uh, you know and i think um you know i can get really deep on this really fast and so i have to be careful but i think um i think we have to decolonize healthcare to really really get to a point where it can be altruistic and about the well-being of the individual so i just i think there's a huge deeper work that needs to be done and simultaneously we need to be figuring out how to provide the people who are ready to go on this alternative journey the tools to challenge the systems within which they exist find communities that will support them and provide their children with the kind of support and care that will help them thrive versus endure and survive and tolerate and comply. And there's just so much information out there and so much misinformation. It's, it's so hard to know what to trust. I guess that's the point that I was trying to get at. But I think from a parental perspective, which is really where we're coming from with this, a lot of this is about applying critical thought. Now, my critical thought with my children is before any kind of decisions about them or I form any opinions about something around them is, you know, whatever it is, is it enabling? Is it empowering? Is it going to engender autonomy in them? Is it going to help them to be authentic? You know, those kind of those positive things that are going to help them grow up to become well-rounded adults who can make decisions for themselves, who will need support in a lot of ways, who doesn't need support. None of us live in a vacuum, but if they're disabled in certain ways, if they need extra supports, that's fine. As long as they have choice around that and they're autonomous around that. And, you know, people think independence is about doing everything yourself and it isn't about doing everything yourself. It's about having control over situations. And sometimes that's control over who helps you or how that help happens and things like that so you know so from a parental perspective breathing and applying that critical thought is this thing going to be useful for them as an authentic person not about is it going to normalize them is it going to is it going to help them become more productive in society are they going to be living up to my expectations none of that is relevant it's about them and their autonomy and their authenticity and that's where we get to empowering our children because Somebody much wiser than me, who you can see on this screen, said to me a while back, we're not bringing up children, we're bringing up adults. And we want adults who have boundaries, who can communicate their own needs, who can advocate for themselves. And I bet the three of us struggle to do that most of the time. And most adults struggle to have those boundaries and advocate for themselves most of the time. So why would we be inflicting that on our children? Mm -hmm. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast so far. Stay tuned next week for part two, where we'll discuss some of the autistic experiences, not only experienced by both Kieran and Virginia and some of the neurodivergent experiences that I've had as well, but putting it in um, a framework where parents can start to understand their children and move towards a more new narrative of autism that is focused on well-being and a neurodiversity affirming approach. So I hope you'll stay tuned for next week. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through playful interactions.
My name is Daria Brown. I really hope this week's episode was helpful for you. My podcast has no sponsors and I produce and do everything myself. If you appreciate my efforts, you can help for as little as $5 US per month. And with your support, I'll be able to continue to bring you these informed resources that will help you on your journey. And I can offer you bonuses for becoming a member. Let's learn together. I'm always open to ideas and feedback. You can find more information at patreon.com slash affectautism. Thank you for your show of appreciation.